I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, episode two of season two. (laughs) You're going to do that all season. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I did it a lot last season. I'm you pretty did. sure I did. I really appreciated that you were like, it's episode 17, part B of, uh, you know. But it only means it's, it comes from like a little bit of a disbelief that it's still happening. I love that it's still happening. We're It, it comes every almost, it takes a while to get to podcast day every week. Like, I wonder if you too ever talks like on, on their 14th tour, ever, <laughs> ever says to themselves, oh my God, it's our eighth show. On this tour. I no, mean, somebody does. Not. And somebody's like, you loser. But anyway, it's still exciting to me, which is good, right? It's very good. Um, you know, and we're doing this one. This is a, a Sunday morning uh, because you had a, you had an engagement on Friday night. Uh, you, were, you were out with young people. How'd that go? Well, it was my last class of um, teaching this semester. And I won't be teaching. You know, I committed to one semester. So... It's the last class. They now go into exams. Um, and so it was a little bit of a farewell um, and a holiday dinner, a pre-holiday dinner. And that's all fine and good and sounds wonderful. But I'm asking, like, how did you keep up with the young people? Like- I, I feel like I, I didn't feel like I was the grandma there. Right. Um, in many ways, the same concerns, like, these are – Concerns that nobody ever applies to just one generation. It's, you know, always this guy I'm dating right now and these problems. These are not new problems. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, and they're, all, they're the grievances are never new really either. It may feel new to them, which I totally acknowledge, uh, totally acknowledge, but like the grievances aren't new either. Like my prof did this, this program, I don't know about it, blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. But you were all okay with it unfolding over many hours. You weren't like, I hope I need this to go, you know, to finish up at 1215 so I can go to bed. Oh, no. Duanna, the dinner started at 5. I was out of there by 8.15, <laughs> in bed by 9.30, and they were off to do their bars. They invited me, and I said, I'm not, like, but they still go to bars where you walk in and the floor sticks to your feet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this uh, was this was my curiosity, is, is yeah. how hard you were throwing down. No, 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 not going to go to those bars. Right. Like, you know, I said back then, that bar, because it's still around. So back when I was going to university at Western, it was still that mm-hmm. bar. We should pause here and point out that you are uh, a professor at your own alma mater. Correct. Yeah, which is, is you know, that's a, a real thing. So, yes, you know that of which you speak. Uh, th- yes. And so, yeah, I mean, I they, they're like, Lainey, just come. And I was like, no, thanks. Um, I have outgrown that. I wasn't even into that when I was here on campus. What's funny is that they have this – the bar is called the seeps, by the way. The, the what now? The seeps. As in, like, it seeps through the floor? <laughs> 
I don't know. Okay. But it's just, it's like everybody who goes to Western, everybody who's in, has been in a Western environment knows the seeps. Anyway, so they're like, um, and I said, so you're going to leave now and go like line up to get into the seeps? And they're like, no, no, we're on guest list. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> I said, what is this guest list? Like who gets to make a guest list? And they said, they say to me, oh, you just call ahead and get put on guest list. And I said, that's not guest list. That's a reservation. Like, <laughs> I don't, what, what is it? It's a totally different, my understanding of guest list, and I know your understanding of guest list is not the way guest list works there. Well, what I was thinking about was that back then it had to do, you had to know who was, you know, working security at the bar, right? Yes. Like you had to... Be aware. I mean, I that is like, also not a guest list, though. No, no, it's, <laughs> no. That's hoping and praying that yes. somebody shift didn't get sh- switched. So I feel like if we were on Twitter, this would be a, a real, a real banger of a tweet. So it was called the Seeps. Yes, because we spend most of our time at university at the fuel station. Right. Uh, it's now an Econo Lodge. But uh, write to us and tell us about your university dive bar, please. Tell us the name of where you went. Because uh, the weirder, the better. I, I really want to know the etymology of the seeps. Uh, but I feel like there are going to be. Of course I do. But I feel like there are going to be some good ones coming in for us. Uh, please send us those as a little aperitivo. I will say as a final note that their parting gift to me was they created the cover of a tabloid. So <laughs> with me on the cover. I, I knew that was coming. Yes. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it was. You know, one day I will talk about it more at length when it's germane to one of our discussions, um, but it was probably one of the highlight experiences of my overall career. I loved every second of it. And um, by the way, my the final class was structured so that it was performance, and their performances were all inspired by Hamilton. So you did have a hand in this class, in this, in this course, Duanna, yes. So uh, a, few, a few classes ago, we themed our lecture around Hamilton and specifically the place of gossip in Hamilton. So we had a really robust discussion about Hamilton, but then their final assignment became, because these are fourth-year students um, and many of them are deciding what's next, where I'm going, um, their final assignment became a performance that was inspired by I'm not throwing away my shot and what that means to them. Um, so- you guys, I'm so sorry. I mean, I remember a time when I had to convince, <laughs> when I had to convince Lainey to care. Uh, so I've clearly created a monster. I apologize. You would have wept in these this three-hour class because they came with spoken word poetry, slam poetry. There was a hip-hop performance. There was uh, a comedy routine. It was unreal. Um, anyway, so before we begin this week and go into our lineup, I should say that we have, you know, some special guests. We should have uh, some special guests in addition to my, my dogs, who you regularly see pitter-pattering. Uh, we have um, we have a young friend. Yeah, guest vocalist a is guest here. <laughs> And uh, he happens to be, his headphones are on and he's watching like a show for... He's growing down to Paw Patrol. Okay. Uh, And I think they're, uh, I think that was Deck the Halls via Paw Patrol. Okay. Um, If you know my pain, then you know (laughs) what kind of pain that is. Yeah. Um, So shout out to that. Uh, But yeah, podcast guest 
Uh, number three, I guess. Yeah, podcast. Yeah. yeah. So in addition, to, yeah, in addition to the pitter patter of pause, mm -hmm. you will see reaction in real time to Paw Patrol, perhaps, or yeah. hear reaction in real time to Paw, Paw, Paw Patrol. I mean, pray for me that we switch to Octonauts. But guys. also, what I love about that is, hey, this is show your work, and the reality of working for many people out there—parents, women, men, everybody—is that sometimes. The little people in your lives are going to be at work, have their place in work, and that's uh, that's actually in many times, many times over the course of show your work, we've talked about emerging workplaces and evolving trends in workplaces, and uh, I think um, I hope that we can live that here at Laney Gossip. I mean, I appreciate that. It's not the segue I thought you were going to make about uh, you know kids and work and so forth. I thought you were going to say you know. The people we're going to talk about are known to love children and, and have sort of that vibe about them. And uh, that's really where I thought you were going to go. You know, the popcorn meme from this summer. Uh, of course, your weekend when it wasn't being taken up with Two Sir with Love uh, was all Harry and Meghan all the time. Yes? This weekend that's just passed in particular, for yes, sure. Because or this whole week, like the last seven days, really. And because why, specifically? Why has this become a fever pitch? It's because, uh, what, like two weeks ago, it was confirmed that Meghan Markle and Patrick uh, Adams, mm -hmm. uh, Patrick J. Adams, I think it is, uh, would not be renewing their suits contracts going into season eight. So that was number one. So everybody was like, she's not going to act on the show anymore because dot, dot, dot. Right. And then uh, she arrived last week in London ahead of American Thanksgiving. So she was not in America for Thanksgiving. Meghan Markle is American. Yeah. Often seen as Canadian because she lives here or lived here for a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she is American. Yeah. Yes. And moving trucks were seen outside of her home in Toronto. Um, so everybody was like, hey, she's not acting anymore. She's now in London. She, they're going to announce an engagement right now. And so everybody has been, well, I, would, I shouldn't say everybody, I should say the UK media has been on high alert. And according to whatever, royal experts, the UK media, there's a certain window for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to announce this engagement. Um, that would be the window between what, like mid-November to the end of November. Okay. So explain that to us because I am not a, I am adjacent to royal followers, not just you, but I seem to run into them everywhere right. in my life. Uh, but I'm not as well-versed in the protocol. Why is that the window? Well, the royals have a Christmas calendar. Of course they do. They have their own calendar. But I mean, yeah, so there's going to be a series of royal events, some public, some private, that they observe over December. And Royal watchers seem to believe that Prince Harry would not want to disrupt cockblock, get in the way of that calendar of events and make his news the only thing people care about and not the events on the royal calendar. Many of those events, I presume, are charitable endeavors, right? So there, it's the season of giving, it's, a, it's spending time with certain um, charities. And so that is, that is the presumption. Um, and so let's talk about one of the things that I think is interesting here is that people might not know this is all prep, you know, it could just be the announcement and then they could be ready, but the prep that's going on behind the scenes in the media is immense. Yes. It's immense. And 
granted, we're living at a time when the press is immense. I mean, when Charles and Diana got married, of course, there was no internet, there was no Twitter, there was no 24-hour news cycle. So I get that. So yes, the press interest is immense. And I have been, like three weeks ago, I was already contacted by UK media outlets asking for me to be on standby for the next conceivable three weeks. Um to be ready at any point during, at any point that an announcement would be made, I would be ready to hop on a satellite feed at, for me, it would be like three o'clock in the morning um, to be a talking head. Um, And so every day you wake up and you're like, "Uh, let me check my phone. Uh, One of the things that was fascinating to me uh, when I was first working in entertainment news is the idea that you're prepping for every eventuality yes. uh, as much as you can. Uh, for example, uh, on slow days, there might be people assigned to cut in memoriam packages of people who have not yet passed. Uh, that's maybe slightly morbid, but it's also being prepared for, you know, uh, the day when that's maybe going to happen. And I also remember the day that uh, two uh, two celebrities of of, you know, unexpected age both passed. And this was in 2004. This is not anything relatively recent. And I was, uh, you know, I was cutting packs uh, back to back because you try to prepare as much as you can, but the news is the news. This is almost uh, the media trying to outsmart real life in a way, right? In a way. And to me, though, the difference between that and we've all long known that most news agencies have this vault of obituaries, right? For I mean, I don't know. I don't know if people, people know that. I don't know if that's a known thing. Yeah. It, no one will outright confirm who is on the list, but we recently or in the last year or so had um, a person on the social who talked about like the New York Times obituary sure. vault without giving too much information. So it's out there. Like those major, Like those major news organizations like the New York Times and I don't know, whatever, BBC, they will have had those preset packages similar to the ones that you would work on on a slow day. Mm -hmm. I think the difference between having those set is, of course, when there's a passing, you want to make sure that the coverage of it is dealt with, with the most respect and solemnity, uh, because you don't want to step out of line and be criticized during a time where it's so sad and whatnot. Of course. With an engagement, I don't think that that gravity, that sense of um, worry about pissing somebody off or being seen to be disrespectful is is there. Even when it's the royal family, it's like, hey, oh my God, they're getting engaged. How do you feel? It's so exciting. When did they meet? Like, So it, it seems like, yes, you're right. They're approaching this like the obituary vault. And yet, I don't, I don't know that all of that is necessary, especially because this is a family who, even though there is no precedent, or as we have said, there's no, I mean, every couple does things differently, they do give you certain things that come along with this kind of news. For instance, the moment that an engagement will be announced, 100% it will be accompanied by an engagement portrait. Sure. Which will have already been taken secretly, right? Sure. Perhaps weeks to right. months in advance. Let's see what the test shots That's look like. That's right. 
So what happens is that they have already built in along with their announcement, or they will have already built in along with their announcement, a picture for you to look at. Sure. And that picture is going to give you at least an hour or two of, right, who took the picture, when was it taken, what's she wearing, what's he wearing, what's her ring look like, the close-up on the ring. That is at least two hours of conversation on your live broadcast. Sure. And the stories about where it came from and what the debate That's was. That's right. Right. And also, these are very organized people from this family, remember. They will have already built in, in addition to the photograph, probably like a set press conference situation or a sit-down interview. And again, or, or something on social media. Since they use social media now, they will release something else on social media. I mean, I love that. That's hilarious to me because, yeah, you're right. It's going to be there and we're going to talk about it at length. So here's my question then. If we know that and that's the part of the protocol that doesn't change, Mm -hmm. is there any motivation for for the royal family or Harry and Meghan or whatever to surprise us, to change our expectations of how this is going to go down? I'll tell you one of the reasons that I ask. Uh, As you said, you know, part of the the reason that they're getting all excited about uh, maybe an engagement now is because she just moved there and because it's mid-November, like it was mid-November with Will and Kate. And I'm, as I say, I'm not a, a real robust royal watcher, but one of the hilarious things to me here is that what nobody is looking at is the Canadian television production cycle. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> this is so this is a true thing. Uh, most shows in the States that you might watch, uh, an American show like, uh, I don't know, The Good Place or... or uh, Orange is the New Black or whatnot. They tend to start up around uh, July, start production around July, and then maybe have a hiatus. Uh, they maybe end circa April. Uh, that's the general cycle. Just one of those things. It's been like that for a long time, give or take, maybe end in March, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then start up again. Uh, and that's always been the way. But for shows that shoot in Toronto specifically, and yep. Suits is technically a... Uh, Suits is technically an American show that's shot in Canada, uh, but the production cycle is different because if you want to shoot outside in Toronto, and New York would be the same, yeah. uh, you know, you need those summer months. So production tends to start up in April, and then you have May, June, July, August, September for all your exteriors if you want them, and then shut down circa October, November, depending on how long your shoot is. So this, to me, is, uh, you know, just a regular end of a season. Yeah. And anybody at the end of the season would pick up and move where their boyfriend is, as you do, you know, or go visit or go traveling or whatever. Right. So there's that funny element to me that people are not necessarily thinking of. Uh, And then I, yeah, I wonder whether, is there motivation here to confuse and obscure? You don't talk about the royals the way you sometimes talk about celebrities and their publicists and that sort of game of cat and mouse. Yeah. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that it is the same where, uh, celebrities, part of their job is to play the media game and manipulate. Um, and it's that overt, but certainly, uh, with the Royal family, especially the young Royals and Will and Harry, there is an awareness of how to make sure that the media is, uh, if not on side, then at least not working against them. In particular, Will and Harry have quite, I mean, we've heard about this for years, have a pretty testy relationship with the UK media in particular. Like they have openly rebuked 
the the UK tabloid culture. They have issued very strong words in the past. And when, maybe like reformed them a little bit, right? Like they tried to at least. Yeah. But yeah. like they listened. Like when they were rebuked for, hey, you're going too far, you're pushing too far, yeah. they stepped back a little bit. Yeah. Yes. And so what is the what does the obviously the palace released a statement. So that's super unusual, right? So what does that statement mean? I mean, it was more like, a, I don't know, a magazine editor called up the palace. I, I don't know if we can call it an official statement, but the word that came down was, we don't like do a play-by-play of his love life. Most of the time we've seen from the way that this particular family handles their shit, it's tight. Right. Like everything about a royal rollout is, and I, I think there is something that we all can learn about this in terms of presentation and event planning, is you can tell that they've taken their breath. You know, nothing ever feels when it comes to the British royal family that it's breathless. It's very measured and everything is quite calm. The pace of it is very calm because, you know, for them, they've been around forever, right? Right. And, you know, in terms of the amount of speculation, it's both bigger than it was for Will and Kate and less, right? Because we just went through this a a few years ago. Right. And he isn't going to be king. Right. But she is, you know, uh, at bare minimum, uh, Catherine Milton was British. Yeah. uh, And, you know, uh, people knew where Bucklebury was. Like, it's 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 a new set of circumstances here. That's right. So... Uh, you know, they're both, yeah, more and less uh, innovative, I guess, in what they're doing. That's right. So I, listen, when it happens, maybe it will have happened by the time this goes to air. That means they will have 24 hours, roughly, to surprise us, to scoop us. Sure. When it comes time, they're going to give us a bit of a show. Oh, yes. That's what I love about them over Will and Kate is because ultimately I do think that Harry is a performer. Well, they've done the impossible. They have made me care. I can't wait. So, yeah, let's see. Um, so, last week we talked about Drake. He uh, was featured in The Hollywood Reporter. It was uh, the declaration of his ambitions to move into film and television, basically the beginnings of his journeys Uh, or his journey to become a billionaire. Right. And it was as much about what does, what work does this kind of a profile do uh, and what's it for? Uh, And that was a really interesting conversation to go, okay, what's it for and who's it for? Uh, So, you know, really always looking at things through the eyes of the strategy, both of the artist and of the the writer or the publication who is kind of complicit in that. That's right. And so one week later... It's Kendrick Lamar's turn to appear in a trade. So, you know, I know that our our lingo and the Hollywood terminology is probably at this point rote, but um, for for those of you who are new to the podcast and to, you know, celebrity studies, um, the trades are generally known as the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and probably now Deadline, right? Would you say? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, IndieWire. Yeah, uh, and specifically like trade publications, things that are supposed to be insider knowledge for insiders, right? Uh, But of course, that's not the case anymore. Like I think with those publications, it used to be that you couldn't get them really. And like there was a time when there was only one place in Toronto to buy the paper copy of Variety and so forth. 
Uh, but Twitter changed all that. Yes. So the trades are now certainly for the trades, but they're also for for everybody. Right. And well, for a long time, Variety was the trade of record. The one, yeah. Um, it's where purchases of yes of sales of scripts and castings and you know business mergers and things were that's where they broke and i think also that's where you know you would see those one page ads that people would take out either for their oscar campaigns for your consideration for example um or they take out full page ads congratulating somebody on getting an oscar or getting the role um, and still do. Those are yeah. definitely still things that happen. Uh, Variety, as if you've seen it, has that sort of newsprint cover. But there's often a cover on the cover, yeah. like a cover over the front page that is, yeah, hey, for your consideration, uh, you know, Sharia Agdashlu or, yeah. or something. <laughs> uh, super, super, you know, she's coming back maybe. So it's it's really like inside baseball celebrity journalism. Or was. Right. And and for the most part, I quite like that in particular, like the Hollywood Reporter has tried really to focus ever since their re- relaunch, which was a few years ago under Janice Min, has tried to really get into the inside baseball of it and make it glamorous. Like this is why the Hollywood Reporter started, you know, doing the top 100 agents in Hollywood. I mean, that's pretty inside baseball. Most of the time, we don't give a shit about who agents are, and agents are certainly not brand name people. But they really recognized an opening. Janice Min actually talks about this, uh, had talked about this um, when she was interviewed by Bill Simmons on his podcast about turning the spotlight on the players of Hollywood. Well, I would say that goes back even a little bit further, uh, you know, Always all credit to Janice Min, but uh, who we love here. But I would say that goes back a little bit further, probably uh, somewhere between Joss Whedon and Matthew Weiner, when uh, the rise of the showrunner, of the celebrity showrunner, that was the first time that that word became uh, a household name for a lot of people. There were people who were film buffs, who knew directors, a handful of directors' names, but when people started to learn what a showrunner was and that who the ones were that they loved, when they became as important as the actors and as the big name directors, then I think there was a real uh, interest in almost everybody in the industry. And probably Entourage helped a lot with that, showing that an agent can be as much or more of a character than the actor themselves. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely been coming and the trades are certainly the ones who leaned into that. Uh, and it's interesting. I didn't expect to talk about this, but, you know, also obviously leaning into the business of these artists, but they're still doing celebrity profiles at a time when celebrity profile magazines are kind of, you know, they're heading at a time when celebrity profile magazines have decreased readership and the publishing industry is in trouble and, you know, there's less appetite for that or less appetite for it in print, I guess, at least. So that's really interesting about the shifting role there. And it does, and it totally works for us on a show about work because what the trades or the new wave of, of the trades direction has done is really expanded the celebrity ecosystem to include the showrunner, the writers, the producers. So we now have a lot more to talk about. And what we have been talking about more and more is actually the work 
the mechanics of the work. So we come to, um, well, last week we talked about Drake's direction and his work and where he's taking it, which is why he agreed or pitched, however it happened, this profile in The Hollywood Reporter as opposed to, what, Billboard or Vibe? Yeah, Rolling Stone, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other thing that's really interesting about that as we begin to talk about this interview is, uh, you know… The lines are blurring. That was an article about Drake, a performer, uh, becoming a producer, a creator, uh, a writer, edging into that world. It's something we've seen before, but it's happening. And then at the same time, we're talking about uh, showrunners and uh, writers and so forth becoming celebrity names. I've definitely seen more photos of Shonda Rhimes or Genji Cohen who ran Weeds and Runs Orange is the New Black and executive produces Glow than ever before. Uh, those people are becoming celebrities, right? The The lines of we all do everything are being blurred. And names like, uh, you know, obviously, unfortunately, Harvey Weinstein is a famous producer or a more positive name, Megan Ellison mm-hmm. is a young... Uh, wealthy producer with uh, who's known to have a lot of taste, who invests in projects that otherwise would not get off the ground and has become a real kind of kingmaker and queenmaker, I should say. So all of those lines are being blurred. Uh, I'm thinking about Greta Gerwig, who was an actress and is now, uh, you know, the directed Lady Bird, which everybody is delighted with, which I cannot wait to see. Uh, so then on the sort uh, sort of on top of all that, then we have this profile on Kendrick Lamar. That's right. So Kendrick Lamar, he is profiled as one of like, it's a series of, I don't know, I, for, I their title is like, you know, exciting performers or something like that. Like DJ Khaled is also in there. But sure. Kendrick is the cover. Yeah. And so it's Kendrick Lamar on the cover of Variety just, you know, a, a week or two after Drake covers The Hollywood Reporter, another trade. They're definitely two different profiles in tone. Hugely different. There was a thesis to Drake's profile where it was very clear the intention there was to introduce Drake as a media mogul. And I'm not sure if the thesis around Kendrick's profile in Variety is as clear, but I find it just as interesting. For all of the questions that we were asking about Drake – Who is this for and why is this happening now? Well, one of the things that we talked about in that Drake profile was how present he seems, how much you know about him without actually having all that many quotes from Drake himself. By contrast, I don't feel that way about this profile. There's a real distance between me, the reader, and Kendrick Lamar, the subject. He's not in the interview in the same way. There's not an intimacy. No, there's not. Although although we talked about counting the amount of times Drake spoke in his Hollywood Reporter uh, profile, and it wasn't that many, and we still felt close to him, Kendrick uses a lot more words, and he speaks a lot more than Drake did um, in Variety than Drake did in The Hollywood Reporter. But what he says is so specific to his music, to the arrangement of his beats, the instrumentation in his songs the reason why he writes these songs, the way he packages an album, the way he packages an album, although it's not a comedy, um, that 
it's it almost seems like in in getting to know the nuts and bolts of his work, we still don't know who he is. Well, you know, it's it's um it's a piece that is ultimately about his craft, right? And that's always really interesting. I want to read a little quote just to get us in here that is almost ironic in the way it starts. So I'm going to read this quote and just to yourself, do a little show of hands of whether you know what he's talking about here or not. Uh, So the quote says, when you get into the world of songwriting and making material that's universal, you got to be hands-on and know the different sounds and frequencies, what makes people move, what melodies stick with you, taking the higher octaves and the lower octaves and learning how to intertwine that in a certain frequency, how to manipulate sound to your advantage. Do you know what he's talking about? Like, yes and no. Yeah, I know all those words. Yeah. Uh, and I have enough musical education to kind of nod along to what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But I don't speak in those terms. Mm-mm. I'm not, you know, I'm not communicating certainly about music in that language. Kendrick Lamar is talking to a very small audience of people or maybe to himself. Well… I wonder if people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but the way that he's speaking about his music and deconstructing it that way reminds me a lot of how Taylor Swift approached the uh, the explanation, if you will, around 1989. Okay, even I'm mad at you. Go on. <laughs> so Taylor Swift at the time, um, she wanted 1989 to be considered for album of the year. Uh-huh. And what she was doing was she was relating or she had learned from her previous album, Red, um, some of the criticism, if you will, around Red was sonic cohesiveness. Uh She kept introducing the term sonic cohesiveness during her push for 1989. And so people were saying, I don't know who these people are, music experts, whatever, whoever within the recording academy, they make these judgments, were saying that Red lacked a certain sonic cohesiveness. So her approach to 1989 as a fully experienced album was to make it sonically cohesive. And so she would do these academy um, academy sessions where members of the recording academy, these are the people who vote on the Grammys, they would be invited to uh, music sessions where she would perform songs, select songs from 1989. The Grammy Academy subsequently released these videos, by the way. And she'd walk them through the writing of the songs, breaking down these sounds, using the same words that Kendrick's using in Variety to talk about the sonic cohesiveness of the album 1989. And I mean, that makes sense in the sense that members of the Academy are, uh, you know, they're songwriters, they're, they're performers, they're whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can be a member of the Academy if you've been in the industry X amount of time. So she's talking to musicians about music. That's their work, right? That's right. That makes sense. Kendrick is doing this in variety, this kind of language. Now, again, as I said a few minutes ago, the thesis of this profile in variety is still a little bit obscure, and I guess this is what we're drilling down to. Why variety? Why now? But the other similarity, too, is in that piece in variety about Kendrick Lamar, it is put out there that his lyrics are constantly obsessed over 
constantly being interpreted and reinterpreted, not unlike the way Taylor Swift has set up her music. Is this lyric about John Mayer? Is this about Harry Styles? Is this about Katy Perry? Now, Kendrick goes, Kendrick does not do the whole luring and the fishing and the leaving of Easter eggs around that Taylor does. But he does say in that interview that he quite likes it, that people are always trying to figure out what he means, that he likes being part of that conversation, that he wants the music and the lyrics to be talked about in that way. And Kendrick Lamar, of course, um, you know, you can't actually bring Taylor Swift on stage without pointing out that he was in… Bad Blood. Um, …that video. And I bring that up because he, you know, that keeps you guessing about what kind of an artist you are, you know? This is somebody who, in this same Variety article, goes on for almost a paragraph about how you have to uh, rap on the offbeat, uh, which, you know, if you know music, he's basically saying, like, I'm trying to clap on one and three, which is verboten. Um, that's really, really sort of deep musical, I'm a an artist kind of thing. But then he also likes to lean into the commercial. He's, he's playing all the sides of it. That's right. So… And, you know, you're not avoiding the commercial or at least a certain part of it if you're being profiled in variety to get back to what we're, we're getting to. Because, look, is the wide Kendrick Lamar fan base reading variety on a regular basis? Is that who we picture, the variety reader? Who is he targeting here? It's a really good question because… The interview has a little bit of everything, you know, mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's, as we say, there's celebrity profile stuff, there's uh, bits that are kind of inspirational, there's bits that are quotes that, you know, should have, uh, like, would be pull quotes anywhere else, there's this deep musical stuff. So I'm not quite sure who he's trying to appeal to. Um, but as you say, he's trying to appeal to somebody. Like, there's obviously a, a calculated move behind this. Well, the most, I guess maybe the most obvious calculated move would be that the Recording Academy announces the Grammy nominations in just a couple of weeks. So I, in mid-December, we will know um, who will be up for Album of the Year and all those big awards at, in, at the February Grammys. And... There are many, many, many people who believe that Kendrick's album, Damn, is the class of 2017. Like, is the MVP. Like, is That's the, right. Yeah. Which, again, opens up an even more interesting conversation because when you think about rap and album of the year, it doesn't meet, right? Well, it hasn't. Yeah. And there's certainly been discussion about how, you know, that's a, that's a bias that the Academy has that yes. is… A, a real problem and a real oversight. So is this about helping them to see this album and Kendrick Lamar in that way? I'd, I don't know. Like, I, I think about Beyonce, for example. Mm -hmm. And Beyonce's not rap, but, you know… It's, it's R&B. It's, yeah, it's right. considered it's, to be… Yeah. And it gets its own category. It's always like urban mm -hmm. or… And last year, when Beyonce's Lemonade lost out for Album of the Year to Adele's 25, mm -hmm. that was the conversation that we were having. We were having 
um, that the Recording Academy voters are only seeing Black performers in one way in specialized categories, but that they reserve the biggest award, the most important award, Album of the Year, to the non-R&B, non-quote, this is their word, urban artists. Right. Well, the term for an album like 25 used to be, sometimes still is, adult contemporary. So you talked about whether or not this profile is doing its job, you know, whether it's going to reach the people that it needs to reach and whether, if we're talking about uh, Academy voters, uh, whether or not this is going to land for them. And I guess my, here's my thought about that. There are some great quotes in here Yeah, that almost should be the headline, that almost should be pieces of their own. You mentioned that Kendrick Lamar is just kind of the the headliner of a piece that sort of is focused on, on six or eight artists, but... Here's a quote, and this is almost one all on its own. He says, early, early on, I really wanted to be signed. And that was a mistake because it pushes you two steps backwards when you have this concept of, okay, I've got to make these three commercial songs in order to get out into the world and be heard. So there were two or three years when I wanted to be signed so badly that I'm making these same two or three repetitive demo kinds of records and I'm hindering my growth. The world could have got Kendrick Lamar two or three years earlier if I'd stuck to the script and continued to develop. I mean, that is, you know, that's work porn. That's knowing that he is needed in the music world. That's, you know, sort of reflecting on mistakes that he made, which is something that not every artist is willing to discuss. But it's not, that's kind of buried in the middle. So I'm not sure if it's going to land where it needs to. I don't know if it's going to land where it needs to, too. But I do think that it's definitely... If if one of the motivating factors, the thesis, you know, of, of this profile is about the Recording Academy and the Grammys, it does, it does offer some insight into someone who has been largely mysterious, like in particular, it's like probably largely mysterious to his own fans who have been following him. Like he's not really on social media. He doesn't do a lot of press. You know, unlike Drake, for example, we don't know a lot about his love life. There have been no rumors about who he's dating and whether or not he was seen at the club and and whatnot. So it's not what he's for. It's right? not. Yeah. So it does it does fit into an attempt to fill out who he is to provide some shading um, in terms of rounding out this brand, the brand of Kendrick Lamar. Um, I, I I really though. I really admire and am interested in, fascinated by this attempt because to bring it back, hopefully to have a through thread this season, last week we talked about reform versus revolution Mm -hmm. and who were the revolutionaries and who might be the reformists. I can't say that I thought that I would categorize Kendrick Lamar as a reformist before this variety interview because his music is very socially some might say um, in in its social consciousness, also provocative. All Right, which is one of probably his biggest hits, maybe his biggest hits, was named as the anthem for the Black Lives Matter movement. This is somebody who has gone on major music live shows and talked about police brutality, has done performance art to reflect police brutality. So his opinions are not without, to certain people, maybe not to us, controversy. Um, and yet, he is working, appears to be working within the system. 
There are some like Frank Ocean who's like, I don't want to be part of the Grammys. I'm not even submitting for consideration. There are some who are like Kanye who are like, and Kanye has his own issues. I get it. Who are like, fuck you, Academy. You keep on not giving me, uh, you keep on not giving me consideration. And yet here's Kendrick who might be considered among all of these rappers, the voice of a generation in these uh, polemic times, the one who is saying, you know what? I do want a Grammy and I think I'm going to see how I'm going to get it. And whether or not working within the system and introducing variety readers to me, I'm going to see how this plays out. And in a strange way, he's doing it at the same time that Jordan Peele is doing it with Get Out. Hmm. Jordan Peele is also walking the awards circuit program. He has gone to every screening he can possibly go to. He is selling Get Out and he is campaigning for Get Out to be included among Best Picture candidates for an academy that's not like the Recording Academy that has conventionally not represented diversity and not welcomed representation. It's actually really interesting that these two voices, leaders in their community, are perhaps taking a reformist approach that could end up being revolutionary. Well, I think, uh, I hope we don't have to explain who Jordan Peele is, but if you don't know, Jordan Peele was one half of Key and Peele, uh, a sketch comedy duo who I adore, but who uh, then began... Good luck! <laughs> Thank you. Now hush while mommy finishes talking, okay? <laughs> Jordan Peele was one half of Key and Peele, uh, was also a sketch comedy performer. So Jordan Peele is not only, to your point about reform versus revolution, is breaking out of A, what the Academy does, B, what kind of films are awarded, and C, the way people see him. He's not just a comedian. Uh, so I see that, but I see a clearer path for Jordan Peele, or I know what I would recommend he do. He doesn't need my recommendations, but if he was asking, I don't know what I would recommend for Kendrick Lamar next. Do you know? Uh, I No, I don't know, but I actually, like, this is somebody, I think, who's put out four albums in five years. Um, and in this variety piece, they talk about his production, his prolific work production. I wonder if what's next is hopefully a Grammy. You know, if, 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 we don't know, this is, this is our interpretation of whatever the thesis of this variety piece is. If it is for a Grammy and Damn wins Album of the Year Grammy, I wonder if what's next is break. Right. Once you've earned it, then you can sit back and figure out how to do it next. Interesting. Tell us what you think. What would be the move that you would like to see from Kendrick Lamar or that you think will happen next? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
So we always tell you to write us and let us know your thoughts or pitch ideas for the lineup. And um, thank you for doing that because today we uh, just got, and I mean, how, I don't know, how fitting that we typically record on Fridays, but this week we had to record on Sunday. And um, and this morning, Sunday morning, we got an email from Moran and she suggested Margot Robbie's Vogue Australia profile as inclusion in To Show Your Work. So thank you, Moran, because yes, we do want to talk about Margot Robbie. And you know, sometimes with somebody like a Margot Robbie who is a working actress, but as you were saying earlier with like a Kendrick Lamar, she's not out all the time. She's not, her love life is not the focus. It's usually her projects. It actually can take more time to be able to talk about someone like that uh, who maybe is quiet about the way they show their work, who's too busy working to be showing their work, right? Yep. And I read this uh, Vogue Australia profile and it was, you know, Moran was right. It is all kinds of work. It's all about her work, but it is actually, um, I didn't know, for example, that uh, Margot Robbie started her own production company and that she, I think they already have three or four films uh, that Two, I think, are in the can. Three, I, Tanya is one of them. Right. And that's what's really amazing about this. If you are a celebrity of a certain uh, heft in, in Hollywood, you will have a production company sooner or later. And those can mean different things. There can be ones where you just kind of have a shingle for people to submit roles for you yourself to play. There can be places where you want to produce films that have nothing to do with you, which is what uh, like a plan B films kind of turned into. Uh, that's the, of course, the Brad Pitt, uh, Jennifer Aniston and uh, Brad Gray mm-hmm. uh, production company. Uh, but it's rare for somebody who is as relatively young and relatively new as Margot Robbie, not only to have a, a company that's developing films that actually get made, uh, but that are as well regarded as I, Tanya is about to be. Yeah. I mean, I, Tanya is what she's been campaigning for. So her performance in I, Tanya, which many, many people actually haven't seen. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Uh, Sarah saw it. It was on her schedule for TIFF. Um, and many, yes, many critics like Sarah are at TIFF and saw it there. But it, it's not, for example, like Call Me By Your Name, where critics saw it at Sundance and then it has picked up all kinds of viewers to the point where now that it's out, so many people were like, oh, I've seen it and it's amazing. I would say that the number of people who've seen I, Tanya is relatively small still. Right. And because it has not been widely released just yet. Uh, I said last week uh, that I haven't seen it. I read it is going to be on my tombstone. And uh, again, I haven't seen I, Tanya yet. I read it. And it's an amazing script. And so... You know, it really speaks to the taste level of somebody who's, you know, of a Margot Robbie to be able to go, yeah, I want that. I want to get that script for me because, of course, the role is, you know, and you, we know a lot of people who are figure skating fans and uh, there's Winter Olympics coming up. So the every four years of them come out of the closet, Uh, but 
it's one of those roles that's juicy but not super flattering. Yeah. Juicy for sure. Flattering. Yeah. She doesn't look in this movie the way she looks in The Wolf of Wall Street, for Hell example. Hell no. No. But she is, if, if, the Oscars, if the Oscar nominations were going to be announced this week, all experts are saying she would be one of the five actresses nominated for Best Actress. Not uh, only that, but Allison Janney, who plays her mother, is almost certainly going to get a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. That's right. So this movie is carrying a lot of expectation. And frankly, I don't even think that people have to see it anymore at this point. They've done their work and their hype is what I'm saying. I mean, I guess so, but I think that, uh, yeah, I hope so. But I also think it's worth seeing for a couple of reasons. It's worth seeing to, to see somebody who, as you say, looks like Margot Robbie, who doesn't, who, you know, who shows up in The Wolf of Wall Street, or I always think of her in The Bubble Bath in uh, uh, The Big Short, um, to then perform a role like this is you know, it's a game changer. It's the time-honored tradition of uglifying yourself for a role, but it's brave. And it's brave from somebody who's relatively young. So I hope people do see it. Uh, I think there's there's a worth there. But uh, you, had an, you have another perspective on that. Go on. No, what I mean is, of course, I hope people see it. I think I want to see it for sure. What I'm, I'm saying is that she's been able to, in her first real run at Oscar been able to get into the conversation without really the public knowing much about this movie in that we've seen like a couple of trailers, that's it. It's a really, really, it's a really, um, as you said, for someone who is relatively young and for all intents and purposes, a lot of people didn't know that she produced this film. They don't know that she runs her own production company. It's really interesting that she's generated this amount of momentum where there are other films who are like putting their hands up being like, we've been out since Cannes. Like we were screened at Cannes. Where's our momentum? It's quite a win for her. I agree with you and yet I don't. And here's why. Um, you know, I was thinking about films that or films that seem like obvious locks early on, or even performers who seem like early locks early on. Remember last year, uh, Natalie Portman uh, in Jackie. That was supposed to be a lock for a nomination and maybe even an early lock for a win. People were talking about it. It was just an assumed thing. And ultimately it lost momentum or the surrounding performances kind of swelled, you know, uh, tides turned towards uh, La La Land and so forth. It was, there was no game there. It was never going to happen for Natalie Portman, right? Uh, I, 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 I think it was a pretty, I, there was a big question mark for sure. I don't know that we, like, I don't know that up until, like, for the example, the SAGs, we knew that it was definitely going to be Emma Stone. I don't know that we knew that it was going to be Emma Stone, but we knew it wasn't going to be Natalie Portman, maybe by, certainly after the Globes. I'm after the say Globes, that. yeah. Yes. So, I, a little bit, I worry about something like this being similar. That uh, a movie like this that seems like such a lock and such a lock performance is so early on that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's a thing. But we're into races. We always talk about Oscar races. We always talk about Oscar uh, kind of, you know, the game. Who's it going to be? 
Uh, so I think that something like this early on where somebody says, oh, yeah, she's going to probably get a nomination. Alice and Janney's probably going to get a nomination. Then you start casting around for the challenger. Mm-hmm. Who's the other? Who's right. the surprise factor here? You know, we have talked a lot about competition. Uh, and uh, between, between segments here, you were talking about the ongoing sort of competition between Kendrick Lamar and Drake and, and what sort of narrative that gives us. But what I was thinking about here is that if you're Margot Robbie, if you are like, you know, seen as a gorgeous ingenue, but then you also have the smarts to choose a role like this, it kind of puts her in a class by herself. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what I wonder is, you know, don't we kind of need that competition factor in order to root for her, in order to have her story be that much more compelling? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I actually don't see um I don't see Margot Robbie as actual like I think that she's definitely going to be in the 5. I think she's going to get a nomination, but I think that she's she's going to get a nomination and that nomination in and of itself is going to be the win. Right now, I don't see her as a contender. I see her as a long shot. Like I don't see her in the 1 2 3. She's a 4 or a 5 in that grouping. But I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at is like if we know that already and it's November, um, then that's not exciting at all. It, and it takes down some of the momentum for her. You want to feel like it's important to be in the mix. You want to feel like each dress that she chooses has an implication. Every interview she does has an implication on whether or not she gets up into that top three or not. You know, if she were, I don't even know who Margot Robbie's closest contemporary would be. Oh, well, here's where, if you want competition, here's where I'll give you one. Margot Robbie and Jennifer Lawrence are the same age. Sure. Um, Which I only knew to ask the question today in preparation for our podcast. I I was thinking to myself, how old is she? Because you know how some people, we talk about this all the time, they present older or younger. Uh-huh. For example, one of our favorite things, which is what you dropped into conversation with me early on in our friendship, um, is that Beyonce and Britney are the same age. Yeah, absolutely. And Beyonce presents a lot older than Britney and always has done. I did, I would say, because now Britney presents as older in a way that is not necessarily uh, a positive, right? Like now sure. she seems like she's been around. Yes. Whereas Beyonce presented... Uh, as more mature. That's right. Another way we talk about this is that when Pretty Woman happened and went supernova, and we, I should say that we both try to and try not to have Julia Roberts in every podcast, uh, but Pretty Woman happened and Julia Roberts was 20, but she was a woman. That's that's one of my favorite things that you have, like, point out, where there are some actresses who've never been girls. That's right. And... Margot Robbie, I've never seen her as a girl. Mm-hmm. Has been a woman. Charlize Theron is another one that comes yes. to mind. Whereas Jennifer Lawrence, I think we would agree, has been girlish. The eternal girl, almost. And in fact, one of the criticisms that's sort of uh, thrown at her career is that Jennifer Lawrence regularly plays roles that are 20 years too old for her. People love to give them to her because yes. she's Jennifer Lawrence, but... Uh, she says that herself. Sure. American Hustle and Joy and uh, I think Mother, like, and S- Silver Linings Playbook. Like, she's 
too young to be playing some of those leading roles. Now, Jennifer Lawrence, to go back to the race and competition, Jennifer Lawrence is has been out there over the last few weeks trying to see if she can get any kind of momentum going for Mother. Right. Uh, she Listen, it's undeniable she wants it. She's out there. She's hustling for it. Right. But you and I talked last week about the Hollywood Reporter uh, Roundtable and she and Emma Stone talking so overtly about what friends they are and that's their narrative. And that's a great Oscar story. Best friends going up for Oscar, yes. which one will win? That's a great story. Uh, you know, Saoirse Ronan is on the list again this year uh, after being uh, a great performer, but not a factor for Brooklyn. So there's a story there, like the comeback kid, you know, there's something there. I don't know who Margot Robbie is meant to be unseated by, or if she wins a seat and somebody else doesn't, who is that person and what's that story? But I think the story is what makes us care about those Oscar races. That's why it's exciting. Well, if I'm reading this story and I'm a voter or a Hollywood player and I'm like, hey, in The Hollywood Reporter, it was Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone being like, haha, we're such great friends and we're winners already. And then I'm reading Margot Robbie producing her own work and running her own production company and this is already their third or fourth film and she's got three more films that she's produced in the can. I'm like, huh, wow, they're the same age. Why don't I ever hear about Jennifer Lawrence talking about her production company? And again, we talked about this last week. It may not be the way she wants to roll. It may be that she's so busy that she doesn't have the time. One of the things that we are hearing more and more about and that Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman talked about uh, uh, with at the Emmys with Big Little Lies was that at a certain point, and it happens earlier than we think it does, women in particular have to make their own work. Uh, have to, you know, create their own opportunities. I read a uh, little piece recently that Riz Ahmed is uh, producing Hamlet uh, that he's going to star in and was talking about how long it took to get there. And that's somebody else who maybe has had to make his own opportunities because if you don't produce it for yourself, then it won't be there. The industry is small enough that maybe Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone are the only two people who don't have to produce their own work. Uh, that Margot Robbie is of the also-rants, who has to hustle or chooses to hustle in order to expand what's available for her to play. There you go, Margot Robbie. That's your storyline. So let's play that. Um, now, is it hard for a, frankly, gorgeous, blonde ingenue like Margot Robbie to sell that she's had to hustle to tell her own stories? Maybe. But if she can do it, that's really interesting. And it is also interesting the difference in versions of friendship that were getting presented by Margot Robbie and then, on the other hand, Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone. So we get this like, oh, Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone and Brie Larson have this three-way text situation and they, they are so close Ugh. and you're rolling your eyes. And yet in this Vogue article or this Australian Vogue article about Margot Robbie, we hear that she her production company is in partnership with her two best friends and her husband. Right. And so she actually makes a point in this article of, of saying, everybody told me not to work with my friends. Everybody huh. told me not to go into business with my friends. But I, I'm like, why shouldn't I? I want to spend lots of time with them. We have such a great time. 
I think, to me too, this was what was also really, really like gave me another huh moment about Margot Robbie because you mentioned a few minutes ago Brad Pitt and Brad Gray who were friends and then went into business together. Nobody's fucking telling him. No, but I'm going to asterisk that because uh, Brad Gray was already a player. True. I would say that the reason that people would say to Margot Robbie, don't go into business with your friends, is the idea that she's a successful multimillionaire and they are not. That maybe there might be jealousy or resentment or uh, frustration there. What I love is that she is basically telling the, you know, the gospel of Hollywood, fuck you. Like, we're better than that. We're cooler or less petty than that. We can sort of rise above this, uh, which in a similar way, it's like a, like that series Doll and M, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, Emily Mortimer made uh, with her best friend uh, that kind of skewers their, their friendship in and out of Hollywood. Beyond Hollywood, it used to be like work gospel. Don't get into business with your friends. You remember those? There were lots of old work gospels that have been dispelled now, um, especially in the age of the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But there were certain things like don't be friends with the people you work with. Um, And I wonder if those things still stand. I wonder if in… In, in spaces that you and I spend very little time, like boardrooms and like high rises where people wear suits to work every day and the firm environment, if that is still something that is upheld. You know, it might be easier to uphold it. If you're working all day somewhere that's really high intensity and the work is about the work, then it might be easier to go, at the end of the day, I need a break. I'm going to go home and see my friends who don't care about like what numbers I ran today or what, whatever. At the root of it, one of the reasons that that doesn't work for this industry is that the work, even at its most work-oriented, is about conversations and ideas and feelings. You know, I think about… Uh, the movie I'm still thinking about that I saw a week ago, uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing's Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, is a movie about a very personal, heartfelt thing that happens to somebody and their sort of personal tragedy. And it's work about the conversations that happens outside work. Uh, and the people who are going to understand that, if you're explaining it to them or pitching it in a boardroom, are people who have been through that or had similar feelings or empathize with that. So I don't know if, if, I don't know if that was ever good advice really for creative industries, but also in a more gig related economy for almost everybody inside and outside of the entertainment business. I think you need friends or at least people that you like in order to kind of have a work circle of people who will call you and send you things and send you where you need to go. I agree. Like, I, I 100% agree that the industry of storytellers is, is going to be more conducive to friendship business relationships. But I also think that, yeah, as we continue to see workplace codes and things that were held as gospel become disrupted, I, I generally am interested to see how those, those things that we used to adhere to 
um, or we were told to adhere to continue to crumble. I mean, we are in a moment of workplace upheaval. Of revolution, as you would say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that doesn't mean that working with friends, which of course we do on the regular, uh, both inside and outside of this podcast, is simple and without its own problems. They exist and there will probably continue to be reform there. The casualness and, you know, intimacy of this industry is, of course, being implicated as one of the reasons why the kind of garbage society of Weinstein, et cetera, went unchecked for so long. So it's not without its problems. But uh, yeah, I think probably we're getting a lot closer to keep the people close to you who who know what you need because they're the only ones who are going to look out for you besides you. Or a certain sense of um, nonconformist attitude as success. Sure. But I guess the more we normalize it, the more that becomes conformist, right? Like yeah. I, uh, I think that people are pretty ready to throw out some of those conformist behaviors. You know, the other one that I thought you were going to talk about was uh, the other rule was don't don't date where you work. You know, mm-hmm. don't meet somebody at work. And I think almost everybody knows by now that the conventional wisdom is where the hell else are you going to meet somebody? especially now that the eight-hour workday is a thing of the long-gone past. Yeah. Um, If you meet somebody that you click with and who basically has an idea of how your life works, why the hell wouldn't you? Well, this this whole conversation, too, reminds me of, first of all, an email that we got, which was a response to a discussion that we had last week about Radhika Jones. Mm -hmm. And Radhika Jones, of course, is the new editor of Vanity Fair, and she wear a pair of fox print tights to the first Condé Nast meeting and… Basically threw down non-verbally about who she was going to be. Listen to the podcast last week if you missed uh, out on that. And in response, one of our readers called Bonnie sent us a research paper, I believe that came out of Harvard, called The Red Sneaker Effect. Um, And it says that… In certain situations, non-conforming behavior is actually taken as a sign of success um, and is is a marker of success for a person coming into any given work situation. Um, we're going to post that with the show notes so that you can take a look at it. It's about – it focuses on um, – it focuses on a uh, clothing attitude. So this why, this is why the fox tights um, applied. But it does, in a larger sense, speak to challenging those old gospels. Yeah. And, you know, about what happens when you walk up to a rule and kind of overtly break it as yeah. opposed to doing it by accident or backing into it. That's right. Which is what we suspect Radica Jones did. I think so. I think that was very deliberate. And which is, again, what Margot Robbie is saying she's doing. I asked people, they told me I was stupid to get into business with my friend. I'm like, why? I'm going to do it anyway. Here we are. Yeah, exactly. All right. And now uh, the the season two return, I think, of Do We Need to Care About? Okay. Who are you pitching? Well, you know, you never bring me anybody to care about. Why am I always auditioning for your I've brought you… I've brought people to this topic, but anyway. Uh, so I sent you a few days ago the Instagram of Jamila Jamil. So before we sort of talk about who she is, did you know who she was before I sent that? No. 
So uh, it's kind of an interesting story. So Jamila Jamil stars on The Good Place, which is uh, an NBC sitcom that stars Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. It's in the middle of season two right now. Um, And the show is kind of high concept, super high concept. uh, And it's unlike any other half hour sitcom on a network in that every, the end of every episode is a direct and overt cliffhanger. Uh, It is a real serialized sitcom. If you are looking for something to catch up on over the holidays, they go down so easy. It's like 21 minutes long and they're serialized. You will be an addict. Uh, So I highly recommend it. The first four or five episodes are a little little like, where are we going here? And then it just takes off. But Jamila Jamil is is one of the stars of the show. And so... I didn't really know about her. She's a very tall, very beautiful woman. They make a lot of jokes uh, on the show about her being a sexy giraffe is a term that comes up a lot. Right. Um, and she has a, most of her scenes with Kristen Bell. So it's there. I think she's 5'11 and Kristen Bell is 5'2. So there's like some yeah. comedy playing there. Uh, but here's why you should care about Jamila Jamil. Did you like her Instagram, first of all? I did. So, and what did you like about it? Well… One of the things I liked about it is, and of course, this is me being shallow and superficial, she always looked different. Yeah, absolutely. So I, at first you sent it to me and I was like, is this the same person or is she posting pictures of other people? Like, I found that fascinating Mm -hmm. because there is typically on Instagram, especially, this may not be her intent on Instagram, but on Instagram, when you create a presence on Instagram, much of it is familiarity. Right. Coming back to the same place. That's right. Well, it's interesting that you say that. So here's the story of Jamila Jamil. She's British and was a uh, an entertainment host in Britain, uh, was quite successful um, and probably the easiest way I can illustrate that is that she uh, was the kind of person who appeared as a guest on the Great British Bake Off. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a big deal to, in certain frames. But then after having sort of worked as a host, she came to LA because she wanted to be a comedy writer. She, you know, I guess is really funny and quite comedic in her hosting and she really wanted to be a comedy writer. And that's what she came to LA to do the push for. And then her agents were like, but will you go and read for this one show though, even though you're not really an actress at all? And the show was The Good Place, and she landed the part, and of course is now a really essential part of the show's fabric. So it's kind of a Cinderella story, but she came to being this kind of an actress a little bit accidentally. Mm -hmm. And so she gets to be, in my opinion, or has decided to be, funnier on Instagram than most people who are, frankly, that good looking ever are. Um, my Instagram tolerance is always kind of low because it's like fun for a while, but then as you say, it's really familiar and you're like, eh, this is the picture, like the last picture yeah. you, you wrote, um, or the last picture you put up. It's not that different. Uh, you've seen one, you've seen a whole lot of them, but she's really funny and it, and the funniness is allowing her to be, yeah, kind of different. Um, so I'm I'm into her and the brand that she's selling so far, uh, but I'm curious about whether she's 
getting to the point of being a, you know, a known name, I wouldn't call her a household name, whether this Instagram is going to be what makes her more of a known name or not yet. Yeah. And what I will say, I forgot to mention, like one of the things about her Instagram too, that intrigued me was like a couple weeks ago, she posted those, these wedding photos. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I'm not sure. Did she get married? Like, that's what I think is, is interesting. I didn't follow up and Google, did Jamila Jamil get married? My point is that these Instagram photos of her in a wedding dress and then there's a subsequent photo of her reclining in this wedding dress, but then some dude sitting beside her, and I'm not sure if this is the groom, and the caption was like, I'm like, okay, maybe this is a joke, but I kind of like that there's a question mark here. Right. Well, I'm going to… Uh, Are you going to spoil it? I'm going to solve one mystery for you and tell you that that was happening within the show, uh, so that's part of the show. But then I'm distracted by the fact that the next picture is of… Jamila Jamil as a shirtless muscle dude with a leather vest on, like she posts her face uh, on <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin's body. Yes. Um, so, you know, this is not purely about being, uh, this is not purely about being a glamorous Instagram star. Uh, there's also a, um, <clears throat> a pina latte is what she's calling uh, the latte art that she's posted here, which is a, uh, an anatomically correct rendering of a moment of ecstasy. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you need to go to the Instagram. Um, But then there's this hilarious door that she found with a sign on it that says employees only or Angelina Jolie. And I'm like, where's this door? Right. And then in between, there's enough posts of, you know, glamorous dresses and posing for press and things to kind of have an aspirational aspect as well. Um, I'm pretty into it. She also, uh, is posting, <laughs> there's a caption of, uh, of her and some Levi's that have ripped open. Uh, but then, the, uh, that looks like, you know, when just your jeans give up the ghost kind of embarrassingly. Uh, but the caption is the worst fart. So, it, you know, I'm always refreshed by somebody not taking themselves too seriously. And if you need somebody like that in your life, I, I submit for the approval that she may be the one. All right. How are you convinced? Are you convinced? Do you now care about Jamila Jamil? Let us know. But we are attaching her Instagram on the show notes for you to follow or check out. And are you watching The Good Place? Or if you're watching a show like that, that maybe we'll talk a little more about some other time, uh, does it ruin the illusion if you're looking at the character and the actor at the same time? You tell us how you feel about these kinds of things and how you treat it. Uh, I should say that's something really interesting about The Good Place, that other than Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, the cast was all unknowns. Uh, and it, I'm spoiling things or not spoiling things, but it really adds to the realism of the show So there's definitely a mitigating factor there. And definitely keep sending us your show suggestions and your comments. We love the research paper that Bonnie sent to us this week again. So um, research papers work too. Um, Keep tweeting at us. Tell us, yeah, what's coming up at your your holiday dinners that you've had or will have. Uh, what's on deck to to look at when we finally get some holidays that have been a long, long time coming this year. And leave comments and reviews on Google Play and iTunes. 
Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.